This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. At the confluence of the Cannonball and Missouri Rivers in North Dakota is where Ana Luisa Armendariz of Denver found herself recently. It is beautiful rolling hills of tall grasses, immense skies, and as you start leaving Standing Rock at the edge of town, there's a bridge that you cross. And that's when you start seeing the teepees, and there's tents, and there's RVs, and there's yurts. Armendariz is one of a number of Coloradans who have traveled north to join protesters opposing the Dakota Access oil pipeline. There are some little kind of berms to the north side. If you were to peer over them, that's when you can start seeing the pipeline, because there's huge amounts of soil that has been trenched. And then right beyond, like about a mile out, you see all these men in black and the helicopter going over us. She says she felt connected to the cause because of her indigenous ancestors in Mexico. Activists are trying to thwart construction of the pipeline, which would cross near the Standing Rock Indian Reservation. They say it would endanger sacred sites and sources of drinking water. The tribe is suing the federal government, saying it violated the Clean Water Act and the National Historic Protection Act by issuing permits for the pipeline. President Obama this week said he's considering ways to reroute it. That comes after rising tensions between protesters and law enforcement. Hundreds have been arrested, including a Denver woman who faces attempted murder charges after allegedly shooting at a sheriff's deputy. To understand this conflict, you have to go way back before westward expansion to the Founding Fathers. That's according to journalist Paul Vandevelder, who's writing about this for High Country News. He has a forthcoming piece called Ten Things the Media Hasn't Told You About Standing Rock. He's also the author of two books about battles between Indian nations and the federal government. And Paul, welcome to the program. Great to be here. Thanks a lot. Yeah. You wrote recently, in the standoff at Standing Rock... The pipeline opponents do not see themselves as political activists or even as protesters. They see themselves as protectors of the water. Can you explain why that's an important distinction? I think that distinction really reaches back into the treaties and the the treaties that are at stake in this conflict. These are natural resources that were protected uh, under the usufructory rights and the reserved rights doctrine that was established in the early 1800s by the Marshall Court. Um, this has been tested over and over again, both uh, in Montana and New Mexico and Wyoming, and been upheld by the High Court, uh, by the Supreme Court. So I think this was a different tack. Um, by the tribe itself to uh, put not only new language and more clear language to it, but also to keep keep the um, the movement focused on the treaty rights and the responsibilities under the federal trust doctrine that the federal government has as a trustee to the tribes themselves and their resources. You use the word usufructory there. Um explain what that is for us. Sure. Usufructory, it's an interesting word um, and and concept. When most of the treaties were were negotiated, the tribes the, the tribes insisted and the federal government agreed to to allow them 
in the conditions of the treaties to continue to hunt, fish, gather uh, in their usual, quote, usual and accustomed places. Those are all called usufructory rights. In other words, the the Mille Lacs, uh, the Mille Lacs Chippewa recently won a case in the Supreme Court where they were able to um, show, due to their treaty, that they had rights to uh, uh, the fish take and the water in the Mille Lacs uh, lakes of Minnesota. Uh, the Bolt decision was very much the same way, if you're familiar with that, in 1974, when the West Coast tribes were granted half of the commercial catch of salmon uh, after the state of Washington brought a lawsuit basically trying to nullify the treaties themselves. Uh, but the court came back and upheld the usufructory rights of the treaties. So. Um, that kind of goes to one of the comments I made in the, the piece for High Country News that I've often been asked, uh, should, should there be, shouldn't there be um, a statute of limitations on these usufructory rights and treaties? And I say, well, that's a great point. Sure, there should be a statute of limitations as soon as we put one on the U.S. Constitution. Oh. The Constitution in Article 6, Clause 2 protects the treaties uh, as the supreme law of the land. And that was ju that was Justice Marshall's job. He, he realized that the founders had sort of sidestepped the issue of how do we deal with these hundreds of Indian tribes in, within the framework of federalism. Yeah, you open your last high country news piece with uh, the first U.S. president, George Washington, and you write that he made a prediction in his farewell address to Congress in 1796. And it had to do with this idea of federalism rubbing up against the rights of tribes. What was his prediction? Well, his prediction was um, his prediction was that it was going to lead to nothing but misery for the tribes. And that it was that it was setting up a conflict within the governance the governance itself of the the country that was going to have to be resolved. He also said, um, and this is a quote, uh, one of the quotes I love from him. He says, "I've thought much on this subject and anxiously wished that these various Indian tribes, as well as their neighbors, the white people, could enjoy in abundance all of the good things which make life comfortable and happy." But I believe scarcely anything short of a Chinese wall will restrain the land jobbers and the encroachment of settlers on Indian country, an unfortunate state of affairs which will stain the character of the nation. I think that's a remarkable statement in 1796 uh, and very, for, very prescient of him to be able to see that. In your forthcoming piece for High Country News, 10 Things the Media Hasn't Told You About Standing Rock, you dig into the relationship between these tribes, these nations, and the federal government. And you say one big myth is that these treaties grant rights from the federal government to the tribes, but it's actually the other way around. Exactly. Isn't that a fascinating um, caveat. Uh -huh. Most of us think of uh, tr treaties. Well, everybody has a different view of treaties. What we have to remember is that we, our federal government, 
Um, and by the way, this is this is an American narrative. Often I'm asked, "Oh, you, you you're you're the Indian writer." I said, "No, no, no, no. This is this is the American narrative, and it's an ongoing one. That's what's so fascinating about Standing Rock." But we went to the treaties. We went to the tribes requesting treaties. The tribes didn't come to us asking for treaties and and agreements. So it. In in the framework, the legal framework of a treaty council, it's you have to imagine it's sovereign to sovereign. In other words, it's one sovereign negotiating with another sovereign. Each one of them has the same rights of nationhood. And the native tribes were conceding things to the federal government um, and not the other way around. So what that also means is that what wasn't ceded by the tribes was falls under what's called the reserved rights doctrine, rights that are presumed reserved by any nation um, that enters into a treaty with another nation, i.e. the rights to the resources to sustain life of its uh, citizens, et cetera, et cetera. And that's where the Standing Rock controversy really comes to a boil because the water of the Missouri River is protected under the Treaty of 1851 uh, under their reserved rights. You also point out that these nations, these Indian nations, have legal standing beyond U.S. borders. This is not just a relationship with the federal government, but with the global community? Absolutely. 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 And the United Nations um, passed the Universal Declaration of Indigenous Rights uh, about 20 years ago. Interestingly enough, one of the last countries to actually sign that and approve it was the United States. We did so under the Obama administration. But the tribal chairman of the, the Hung Papa Sioux went to Geneva to address the United Nations as a as a head of state as a of a sovereign nation and that was just a couple of months ago you're listening to Colorado Matters I'm Ryan Warner and we are talking with Paul Vandevelder the author and journalist who's writing about what's happening at Standing Rock for High Country News he's written a piece called Reckoning at Standing Rock and a forthcoming one called 10 things the media hasn't told you about Standing Rock and Just this past August, the National Congress of American Indians sent a letter to the White House and the Pentagon asking that they halt construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline near the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation. This came after the tribe sued the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, the federal agency that granted permits. The planning for the project has been going on for years, and there are conflicting reports of whether the tribe was aware of the initial meetings about the pipeline. Can you give us a general sense of what the federal government's legal obligations are to tribal nations when working on projects like this? I that's a that's a really good question and I think it goes back to the word reckoning in the title of the story. The reason uh, that the, the essay that came out in High Country News we we chose that word reckoning because it really reaches back to the to the idea of this 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 problematic, ongoing problematic um, conflict we have with the concept of federalism 
and how the tribes are to be included um, in the governance of the nation. What it returns to, if we go back to the Marshall Trilogy of Chief Justice John Marshall, right. is that the, the federal government has a legal trustee relationship with the tribes that it doesn't have with the states. In other words, uh, as, um, Felix Cohen, the solicitor for the Department of Interior, explained that it, what we've got, what the the federal government has a legal and fiduciary responsibility to protect the resources and the livelihood and the treaty conditions that are embedded in its relationship with the many tribes it it signed treaties with in order to acquire public domain. In other words, we could not have expanded across the continent as a nation, as a people, without having been granted that land in uh, the public domain by the tribes. So that keeps us, keeps the federal government in a relationship of fiduciary responsibility, meaning they have an obligation, both legal and moral, to consult with the tribes any time the tribal resources are at stake or potentially threatened. And whether that happened amply here is obviously in question. Right, right. I, I just wanted to side effects from one of your pieces for High Country News. Natives are about 1% of the population, you write. But the outback right. real estate they were forced to accept, and this is true especially here in the West, holds approximately 40% of the nation's coal reserves, 65% of uranium, untold ounces of gold, silver, platinum, cadmium, fresh water, billions of bored feet of virgin timber. And so that is obviously adding to this relationship and the tensions around it. Um, do, do you ever yes, do you ever see a, a path forward with all of this, so that, as you've alluded to, history doesn't continue to repeat itself in this friction, I guess, between federalism and these these nations? Yeah, there's going to have to be some kind of awakening, and that was one of the reasons I got onto this story about 20 years ago and first wrote Coyote Warrior, because it was. Clear on the Missouri River, for example, when the Pick Sloan Plan was passed after the Flood Control Act of 1944, they picked five spots to place flood, major flood control dams, and every one of them was 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 situated in a way that it would flood Indian lands and protect white lands. Every one of those has been that whole the whole Flood Control Act has been has been since since um, abandoned or or um, criticized by Congress itself in 1992 they came back and admitted that they had um, they had violated their their trust agreement with the tribes by doing so well here we have the same situation with this pipeline um, they are once again the, the the interesting issue was the, the original pipeline was, going to run north of uh, Bismarck, North Dakota. And when they realized that it could, a, a breach in the line could possibly taint the uh, the drinking water for the city, they moved the pipeline south and routed it along the Indian reservations. So that, I mean, and that that's a matter of record now. So it's a question of, it's, 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 
I, th- I think we're just going to see more and more of these battles because most tribes now have legal departments and natural resource departments, and they're not just rolling over. Um, the Isleta Pueblo, for example, won a huge case in the Supreme Court on water quality. Um, the Fort Mojave tribes pushed back a nuclear waste um, uh, incinerator that was planned in the Mojave Desert by the state of California and the, United, and, and the federal government. Um, the Malacs, as I mentioned earlier, right. and the Potawatomi in Wisconsin, they've won cases. I can cite hundreds of cases that have been won in either high courts or or um, the appeals courts by the tribes based on the usufructory rights and or the reserved rights that were embedded in their treaties. And yet the states continue to try to infringe on those. Paul, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Paul Vandevelder is a journalist, documentary filmmaker, and author of two books, including Savages and Scoundrels, The Untold Story of America's Road to Empire Through Indian Territory. He's writing about the Dakota Access Pipeline protests for High Country News. There's a link at cprnews.org. Vandevelder joined us from Corvallis, Oregon. And we'll be right back with a grandmother and granddaughter who get along despite their political differences. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We're taking a break from the bitterness of this election to talk with people who disagree politically but still find a way to get along. Through our Public Insight Network, we asked you to name your favorite political opposite. And that's how we found Shauna Mullinax, a graduate student in political science at CU Boulder, and her grandmother, Carol, who lives in Greenboro, North Carolina. And a welcome to both of you. Oh, thanks for having us. Good morning or good afternoon. Indeed. I should have said Greensboro. That's correct. Indeed. Well, how, how close would you say you two are, Shauna? Oh, we're really close. Um, I try to go see my grandparents as often as I can. And we usually catch up on the phone every two weeks. Yep. <laughs> so you'd agree with that, Carol, pretty close? Yes, I would, yes. And we talked like an hour at a time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at least. Wow. Yes. <laughs> Shauna, I didn't think young people talked on the phone anymore. I thought it was all texting. <laughs> so I know. We do a little texting, a little email, but, you know, we usually have too much to talk about for those mediums. Yeah. <laughs> well, Shauna, you're a Clinton supporter, the more liberal of the two here. I understand you and your grandmother had a telephone conversation earlier this year, and you asked her whom she was supporting for president. Tell us how that phone call unfolded, Shauna. <laughs> so we had caught up a little bit on, you know, sort of the usual things we talk about the day-to-day. And I finally broached the subject and I said, you know, who are you going to vote for? And um, right as she answered, the phone call dropped. And when I called her back, uh, my grandpa had accused me of hanging up on her. But um, my nanny said, no, no, she wouldn't do that. So um, kind of took this moment that I was a little bit nervous about asking anyway. And then, you know, technology failed us. (laughs) And uh, how did that conversation go once it was actually broached? Um, well, we just started talking about, you know, our reasonings for why we're supporting different candidates. What did you tell her about why you're supporting Clinton? Well, I think she definitely knows that at the top of my political agenda are, you know, social issues and 
women's rights and LGBT rights, and um, I'm pretty supportive of social spending and uh, government intervention in that way. And I know that those are areas where we kind of tend to differ. Um, And for me, Clinton really represents um, things that I want to see happen, like equal pay for women and um, freedom of reproductive rights. So, So Carol, uh, your granddaughter there mentioned that you're supporting different candidates. Are you supporting Donald Trump? Well, my answer to that is I am a conservative-thinking person, and I don't like the way that that the United States as a country is 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 gone, has gone. Uh, too much, too much government, and I can't say that I like either candidate that we have, but I'm going to vote on the party line. On the party line, so supporting Trump. And how was it to be in that conversation with Shauna about whom you were supporting? Oh, it it was fine. I mean, you know, we can talk like that. It's just never been a problem between us. Um, You know, she's my granddaughter. I love her. And I wouldn't get in an argument with her. (laughs) But I grew up in a family where we used to be able to argue a point, you know, like a political point, uh-huh. but there was never anybody that got upset. And so that's what Shauna and I do. You know, we, we share with each other how we feel, but we don't get upset. You don't get upset, Shauna? I'd like your perspective on that. Yeah, no, um, you know, coming from West Virginia, that's where we're both from originally, um, and realizing sort of in high school that um, a lot of my attitudes and feelings about politics uh, were very liberal. You know, I had to sort of figure that out early, how I felt about that and how it was going to fit in um, with my mostly Republican Party. My mom once jokingly said to me, where do you come from? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and you know, I think, so that's something I've thought about a lot. And the fact that, you know, I study political science, I think it's really helped me with that. But um, for me, it's an understanding, you know, what my family and, you know, my grandma has seen that, that shapes her views on politics. Um, and and just really trying to think about that without letting my own uh, opinions get in the way. And I'm curious, Carol, you talked about seeing too much government. Where do you feel that in your life? Oh, my goodness. All you got to do is look at the, the taxes that have been added, the little dinky uh, laws that get added. Uh, they, they're trying to tell us how to breathe, practically, the, the government, the the governments, you know, there's more than one. Um, and I'm an independent, people from West Virginia are independent. And and that's what I don't, I don't like that. And I'm not, I'm not sure that this election will solve any of that either. Hmm. Uh, Shauna, you mentioned that you're a student of political science, and uh, mm-hmm. I think you're getting a PhD. Yeah. Have you learned anything from your grandmother in your conversations with her? Oh, yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, we talk a lot about history and I think, um, you know, I I was just telling her this the other day. I learn a lot about, you know, the historical context of elections in the U.S. and wars and, um, and it really helps me to talk to her to understand what she was experiencing and what, you know, people in West Virginia were experiencing and conservatives in the country at that time because, 
I think, you know, a lot of what I learn can have a little bit of a more um, liberal perspective, and it helps me understand, you know, again, why the people around me feel the way that they do and why they see, um, you know, events in history the way that they do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I guess what impresses me so much is that you you talk really head on about politics when, when so many families might avoid that when they're in the company of family. What does that say about your family? Just before we go, Carol. Oh, we we've just always been able to do that, and I assume in myself that it comes from seeing it in practice. Because I've seen my dad and my uncle. Uh, there would be whatever the thing would be, and one would take one side, and the other take the other side. But you knew that the one that took the opposite side, that wasn't what they were believing. They were just arguing the point. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> you like... know, so that does away with with um, any upset, you know, when you approach it like that. Right. It's like deba- debate club or forensics in the family. So you heard there uh, Carol Mullinax and her granddaughter, Shauna. Carol lives in Greensboro, North Carolina. Shauna is a graduate student of political science at CU Boulder. And you can read other stories from families who agree to disagree, a father and daughter, a married couple, and more at cprnews.org. We'll be back with a new film that blurs the line between what's real and what's fake. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. I just watched a really strange movie. It made me laugh out loud, but the characters can be excruciatingly awkward. Like this guy, who's talking and eating at the same time about his desire to do stand-up. Yeah, I'm trying to develop my um, comedy routine on the side, trying to be a um, stand-up comedian. Um, You want to hear a joke? Let's do it, man. Yeah, okay. Hit us. Um, sure. Um, okay. The apple and the orange, they were shopping at um, um, Banana Democracy. Yeah. And then, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. The characters in this film are struggling actors in Denver in real life. And that includes the man you heard laughing at the end, Arthur Martinez. He's the star of the movie called Actor Martinez. And throughout it, Arthur isn't sure if he's playing himself or a character. Here he is talking to a member of the film crew that's following him. This is really an acid trip. I don't know what's real and what's fake. You guys have destroyed my sanity many times. Actor Martinez plays at the Denver Film Festival this weekend. Arthur Martinez is here with director Mike Ott. Welcome to you both. Hello, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. So what is this film? Is it fiction? Is it a documentary? Is it a mockumentary, Mike Ott? I mean, it's definitely not a mockumentary. Um, I think it's somewhere between, you know, fiction and nonfiction. You know, but Nathan and I were talking about the other day, and I've kind of forgot which parts are real and which parts are fake. They all kind of blur together now. And Nathan is? Nathan's the other director, uh, Nathan Silver. Uh, how much did you tell Arthur about the film as you were making it? We didn't tell him anything. We just told him to show up, where to be, and um, we kind of went from there. How did this idea occur to you? We had met Arthur and I had met here at the festival in 2010, 
he picked me up from the from the airport. He was the one of the drivers, and we got to know each other. And then he met Nathan in 2012, I think. I think, and then or 13. Um, and Nathan and I have been talking for a long time about making a film together, and we kind of pitched it to Arthur. Well, Arthur at first asked me to make a short film with him in it, and then we came back to him and said, "Well, how about we make a feature film, but we co-direct it with you in it." And we don't tell you what it's about. And it's unscripted? Yeah. I mean, we knew it was loosely going to be... I mean, all the kind of stuff that Nathan and I make are people kind of playing versions of themselves. So we knew it would be something like that. At the time, we didn't really know what it would be um, when we when we approached Arthur. And Arthur, for some reason, was being super difficult. He started avoiding us. He would, didn't, said he didn't want to be make a movie. He was so busy. And we're like, busy doing what? Fixing computers? Like, come on. So in the film and in real life, do you do IT on the side? Is that right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. It's probably that you do IT as a main job and acting on the side. Oh, yeah. Okay. I, all, all film people have to have a, a second job. So how did the filmmakers treat you during the filming? Did, did you ever wind up getting a script? or? No, I never did get a script. I, I guess I, for some reason, expected one, but it's cool. I mean, you just have to uh, put your trust in them. Uh, one of the first things uh, Nathan asked for when when Mike and Nathan and I met was was creative control. And I'm not a filmmaker. I'm not a director. I'm not a writer. You just have to trust. That's what it comes down to. And it, I can say you have to trust. It's it's not that easy to actually do it, but uh, you do the best you can. Mike, why did you think Arthur would be the right choice as an actor? for a film that would sort of reveal itself to him as it went along? I don't know. I mean, at the time, I think the... I mean, part of the the struggle with the movie that I think is in the movie is initially Nathan and I were trying to make a different kind of movie, and then once we started making the movie, Arthur started being very difficult. (laughs) So all the kind of things that we had initially wanted to make the film about aren't really in there, so it's all kind of blurred and confused. What do you mean when you say he got difficult? I mean, you know, well, you'll see he'll, you'll, when he answers some questions here, he likes to be very vague. And, you know, I, he, I've told him many times, like, you know, being vague isn't necessarily being interesting. And so a lot of times we were arguing over stuff because we'd ask him a simple question like, uh, who's one of your favorite actors? And his answer was, I like them all. And I said, well, that's not an answer. And also, like, we can't make a movie if we're asking you questions and these are the kind of answers you're giving us. Like, no one wants to watch that, you know. Um, so that was kind of where some of the battle and struggle started. Do you think you were being difficult, Arthur? Um, I I promote local film. Um, so what I do is uh, I pr- use a, a very positive – I have a very positive image in this community. Um, and I'm used to being careful about what I say. Um, so when they were asking me to, uh, say something negative, I just turned around and said everything negative. That's about not a them. question about being negative. That's a, that's, <laughs> that's a, who's your favorite actor? That's a very positive. What is this film about? How would you encapsulate it? My God. Um, I don't know. It's hard to say. I don't know what <laughs> I would say about it. It's... If the director can't say, yeah. it, it, what does that speak uh, I mean, I what think, does that speak to? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it's a movie um, in somewhat about about making movies. And then I think it's about the process. Um, and also, I mean, I kind of about all levels. I think about it's a lot about acting, um, about what it means to be an actor. And an actor in not a major market, not, sure. in, not in New York. And, and that's not... what I find interesting. I mean, I like this idea that there's people like not in L.A. or New York trying to, you know, forge their way. I think of this film as a mix between 
Napoleon Dynamite with mm. those awkward scenes, the kind of drab surroundings, and a little bit of The Truman Show, which is the Jim Carrey movie where he discovers his life is actually a TV show. Mm. Yeah. Most of it is filmed in your Denver apartment, Arthur. So you didn't really have any privacy. I understand they redecorated your apartment. Yeah. Yeah. They came in and redid everything. Um, it was madness. And yeah, I don't have a clue what happened. Yeah. Some of the crew was living there too, I think. Yeah. Really? And how long did filming take? It was like about tw- a month. Yeah. Like tw- I think 20 days of shooting. And then, but we were here for about a month. I mean, the real difference between this film and the Truman Show is that you're a real person and you weren't necessarily um, aware when you were being filmed. Is that right? Uh, yeah, quite a bit, actually. Um, most of the time they would call cut and they wouldn't really cut. So, Is that ethical, Mike Hott? I think everything's ethical. <laughs> oh, well, that, yeah. okay. I mean, no, I do. I mean, I think, like, listen, I mean, everything is um, has some level of exploitation in it. I mean, Nathan and I got exploited. Everyone got exploited in the movie. So I think it's part of the process. So not a single piece of dialogue was ever... Uh, written down and handed to any of the actors? No, I don't think so. I mean, for the most part, we would maybe whisper in someone's ear something to say um, if there was like an important kind of uh, plot thing that we wanted to get across, but we would never really te- like give someone like a script or anything for, for something to say. Did this feel <laughs> like an invasion, Arthur? No, you know, it, it's, it's part of being an actor. Uh, every film that an actor does has to be somewhat of an invasion Otherwise, mm-hmm. you're not getting a, the true feeling across. Um, it's what we're trained to do as actors. Hmm. I see why the ethics aren't black and white in that case. But I also think, I mean, you know, uh, part of the problem is that if we told Arthur what we were going to do, he would do this like shtick, which would be super boring and uninteresting. <laughs> so the only way to get like a, to, the only way to get an authentic reaction from him was to not tell him what was going on and to surprise him. And those are, I think, the strongest moments of the movie. Anytime where he knew it was going to happen and he would come in, he would start acting. And we kept saying, we don't want acting because, like, me and Nathan both hate most actors. You hate most actors? Yeah, because I think most actors are really bad. I think most actors are really putting on a shtick and we were not interested in that, you know. I think both of our favorite films are movies where it's people um, who aren't actors who are the star of a movie. But aren't you calling Arthur a bad actor and that actually when he acts well is when he's just himself? Exactly. What, how does that make you feel hearing that from your director, Arthur Martinez? Oh, my gosh. Uh, you know, we go at it on set and we go out for drinks afterwards. It's, it's fine. Yeah. It's, it's the business. Huh. Let's take a break and then continue this discussion of the film Actor Martinez. It is shot in Denver and it debuts at the Denver Film Festival this weekend. We're speaking with its lead actor or lead um, personage, Arthur Martinez, and it's one of its directors, Mike Odd. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's rejoin our conversation about a new film made in Denver called Actor Martinez. It stars Arthur Martinez, who is a Denver actor and IT professional. And Mike Ott is one of its directors. The film screens at the Denver Film Festival this weekend, and it really blurs the line between real life and fiction. And I'd like to play another clip. So as part of the film, um, the directors want to find a love interest for you, Arthur, and they bring in several actresses to audition and ask them questions. Do you have any STDs? Uh, no. Do you smoke? No. 
Do you feel like you're a compassionate person? Um, about 99% of the times, no. <laughs> but about the remaining 1%, yes. Very oh. compassionate. Okay, so we have to send you out because they're all deal breakers. Mm-hmm. Several times in that screening process, Mike, you guys ask each other whether a certain actress is marketable. Mm. Like that's a big criteria for you. Is that really something filmmakers ask themselves about? No, I think actors? I got this wrong. He was the one asking if they were marketable. You, we you, were asking him because he told us that was a very important thing in the movie that they had to be marketable. What does it mean to be marketable, do you think, Arthur? Oh, it's just uh, somebody who has wide appeal for the audience. That's That's actually what I was asking for. That is true. Wide appeal. You're saying, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Which means what? Which means uh, wide appeal. I, you know, I, I don't know. That's a long discussion. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. Well, when you do find someone to play Arthur's love interest, it's an actress named Lindsay Burge. Yeah. And there's one very awkward scene where the director seemed to spring it on her mm-hmm. that they want to do a sex scene mm-hmm. to show how close she and you, Arthur, have become. What is the story with this scene? Oh, are you asking me? Um, yeah, we wanted to do a sex scene. We wanted to get some kind of real moment between the two of them and, um, you know, put them in the most awkward situation we could. Uh, it was very awkward. I was very upset with that. Um, uh, it was a very upsetting scene. Uh, it was actually written by Lindsay, I, I found out later. Wait, written? Uh, so wait, there it was written. Lindsay was in on it, yeah. It was her idea. Okay. Yeah. The actress. The actress, yeah. And what made it, what made it so awkward? Describe the circumstances that... Uh, well, you know, I think Lindsay had really convinced Arthur that she was uncomfortable and was playing it, you know, that she didn't want to take her top off. And we were pushing her very hard to take her top off. Um, and so Arthur, you know, of course, freaks out in the middle of it, which is great. Um, again, yeah. So we just wanted to see, like, how far we could push it and, you know, again, what kind of honest reaction we could get out of him. And it's a, a question, I think, again, of exploitation mm-hmm. a little bit. Yeah. But that's the thing. I mean, there is no expectation. I mean, she was in on it. So, and, uh-huh. you know. If we would have told Arthur we're going to do a scene to try to convince her to take her top off and you have to act like you care, the, the scene wouldn't be as, I think, interesting or uncomfortable as it, as it is. Denver itself does not come off looking very good in this movie. It, it just looks like a kind of middle place for unremarkable people. Um, what, what, talk about place. I, I think I would disagree with that just because this film is a Denver product. I mean, it, it's a res- direct result of the Denver Film Society, uh, denverfilm.org. Please support them. Uh, it, it's actually a You varying... are a promoter. Absolutely. <laughs> no, um, I love those people. They are at the forefront of film art in this state. And it's, like I said, denverfilm.org. These guys are great. But it's not particularly showcasing of the city. In other words, there aren't, you know, helicopter flying beauty shots or anything like that. It's a lot of your drab, redecorated apartments. It's a lot of generic locations. Mike, talk about place a bit. Well, I guess, you know, I mean, we didn't set out to make a movie in Denver to, like, showcase Denver in a good way or a bad way, right? Uh I mean, we just came here because, you know, we found people that we thought were interesting and wanted to make a movie with them. So, um in no way did we have any kind of like preconceived idea of trying to make Denver look interesting or make it look boring or, or drab. Like you said, um, you know, we also, you know, we used Arthur's apartment all the time just because, you know, we didn't have a lot of money and that was a place to shoot. And again, you know, it was based around his life. So, uh, and also we didn't want to shoot out in the city and have beauty shots or anything like that. 
I found it remarkable how much he used silence in this film. Mm. I think towards the end, there are just minutes of silence as the actors sit around a dining room table. Yeah, the last shot, yeah. What tool, what kind of tool is silence in a film? Mm. I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, I think silence is... uh, can be it can be very important and very moving, um, and I think maybe that's why the the end scene works. I don't I don't know exactly how it works case by case, but I think at least in this film, that last shot, um, you know, is one of the moments that I think we really like cracked into Arthur's head, and you can see that he's really uh, conflicted about something and trying to uh, negotiate something, um, and I think maybe that's why the the silence works so well. Yeah, Arthur, talk about being on screen when there is really no dialogue. There's uh, it's just silence. Silence is definitely the hardest thing an actor can do. Is um, There's a lot of effort that has to be put into it, a lot of concentration. Um, not everybody can pull it off. Why? In other words, I, I think to an outsider, you might think the silence is the easiest thing, right? You just have to sit there. But it's, it's, it's more complicated. Than Way that. more complicated than saying dialogue. Dialogue really is a crutch in, in many ways. Um, the best actors are the actors that can do nothing and make it work. My God, did you have a sense of how the film would unfold and how it would end when you began making it? Or was that revealed to you day by day? Yeah, I mean, I think in the beginning, the film kind of like imploded as we were shooting it. And because uh, we only had, we had like a like a 10-page outline or something, the Nathan, or, or some five-page outline of kind of ideas for scenes. Um, and as we went along, it went way off course. And then as we got closer to finishing it, I think the outline that we had written was very close to what we ended up having in the final product of the movie. Huh. Yeah. It's really funny. I mean, I, we've we've explored a lot of heady, you know, uh, kind of directorial and actor-related concepts. But did you have fun on the set? I know there were frustrations, but did you have fun, Arthur? Absolutely. I, I'd do it again uh, once I recovered. It, it did take quite a while for me to recover from this kind of shoot, though. Yeah. W- say more about that. What was the most traumatic? Uh, the whole thing was very traumatic uh, just because I never knew what was going on. I didn't know what the finished product was going to be. I still don't really know what the film is about. Um, <laughs> so that yeah. makes two of you. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Reading a few reviews, it strikes me that they are reviews of your film, Mike, but also kind of reviews of your life, Arthur. What, what has that been like? Uh, like I said, I don't really know what it's about. Yeah. I'm just going with it. It's uh, These guys have done a great job, um, the producers and and the directors, uh, of making something that is worth watching. And, and I'm very proud of that, even though I don't know what it is. You like the film? Yes. Mike, how do you, do you like the film? Yeah, I like the film a lot, actually. Um, you know, I think it's, um, I always have a good time watching it. We had a great time making the movie, you know, as frustrating as we had, but I mean, uh, the shoot itself was fantastic. We had like a, such a good time in Denver. Yeah. And la- laugh out loud funny, as I said. Thanks to both of you for being with us. Cool. Thanks for having us. Thank you. <clears throat> you heard Arthur Martinez, who stars as himself in the new film, Actor Martinez, and from one of its directors, Mike Ott, plays this weekend at the Denver Film Festival. The movie is set in Denver, and there's information about the three screenings at CPRnews.org. <laughs> A beer delivery from Fort Collins to Colorado Springs isn't normally news, except when it's done without a driver. The delivery happened in October and was the world's first commercial shipment using a self-driving truck. 
It made CPR's Vic Vela wonder about the future of this technology in Colorado. Matt Grigsby shows off the inside of an 18-wheeler. Fold the wheel up, scoot the seat back, armrest out of the way. This is a self-driving truck, and he was inside this truck a couple of weeks ago when it rolled by itself down I-25. Think about that. He's in this huge truck that's rolling down the highway with other cars zooming by, but nobody's behind the wheel. I mean, that must have been pretty amazing, right? It was entirely uneventful and pretty boring, so it was a great success. Okay, so maybe it wasn't all that amazing. But that's a good thing if you're someone like Grigsby. He's a senior program engineer for a company called Auto. It's a self-driving vehicle company that's owned by Uber and based out of San Francisco. Grigsby says people will have to start getting used to the idea of autonomous vehicles. A big takeaway is that we need to stop thinking about self-driving vehicles as some super futuristic thing to be scared about. Like these things are real. They're happening every day. For the beer run from Fort Collins to Colorado Springs, Auto partnered with Anheuser-Busch. Remember, this is the company that once used Clydesdales to haul beer. Now it's trying out self-driving vehicles. So Colorado is ready for this technology, right? There really aren't any laws that govern self-driving vehicles in Colorado. That's Shaylin Batt, the executive director of the Colorado Department of Transportation. Batt says a lot of the state's transportation laws were created after horseless carriages. So this is a case of laws not exactly keeping up with technology. Bat expects lawmakers will have discussions around regulations soon. In the meantime, Bat says he supports the technology, and he thinks self-driving vehicles can actually ease traffic congestion and make roads safer. After all, it's people who usually cause accidents, and computers allow vehicles to drive straight down a lane without any herky-jerky movements by distracted drivers. So if every vehicle is going to run right down the center of the lane, um, maybe I don't need 12-foot lanes, maybe I need 9-foot lanes or 8-foot lanes. Right? Maybe I can go out and widen I-25 with just a little bit of paint because we're at peak road, uh, because connected vehicles are going to allow us to do that. Think of autonomous cars and trucks like airplanes. Eric Berdinas is a product manager at Auto. He says a pilot does a lot of work during takeoff and landing, but in the air they could put the plane on autopilot. Same goes for an autonomous truck. A driver can get behind the wheel to guide the truck through off-ramps or local traffic. But it's actually safer to be uh, you know, controlled by uh, a self-driving system during the long stretches of highway. That's where it becomes the most mundane. That's where you get the most you know, fatigue, plays into accidents. Still, there are concerns. Kara Dennis is a spokeswoman for the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, which represents many truck drivers. She has a lot of questions like whether autonomous vehicles are cost-effective for independent truck drivers, and if the trucks are able to keep riders safe in bad weather. And Dennis worries that computers might be susceptible to cyber attacks. What's concerning right now is there really are more questions than answers on this topic. Berdinas admits that right now the technology is expensive, but that it will come down in price as the market adapts. Eventually, he believes this technology will pay for itself because drivers will be able to take longer trips without being behind the wheel. Berdinas also hopes the technology will develop to allow autonomous vehicles to handle bad weather. And he says Auto has a team dedicated to preventing cyber attacks. So Berdinas understands the challenges that come with this technology. Even for, for people on the team, it's still kind of an odd experience to see nobody in the driver's seat. But you know, when people had, uh, you know, elevator operators uh, no longer in the elevator or in an airplane, once, you know, autopilot became popularized a few decades ago, 
uh, there's always this period of shock and awe, but then after a while, uh, it's kind of routine. You realize, well, actually, this is safer. In the end, Berdinas believes self-driving technology will keep people safer than the way we drive now. Meanwhile, Anheuser-Busch wants to ship more beer to a liquor store near you using a truck without anyone behind the wheel. I'm Vic Vela, CPR News. That's Colorado Matters for today. You can follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters, Facebook CPR News, or email us through the website if you'd like to get in touch. At CPRnews.org, click contact at the top of the page. I'm Ryan Warner at Colorado Public Radio.